Hello out there in cyberspace. There are thousands of people still trapped in Ukraine and trying to flee. Millions have been internally displaced, and others still are trying to cross over the Polish border and find refuge. But for foreign students stuck in Ukraine, it can be much more difficult to leave. A war zone is a terrible place to be no matter who you are, but these foreign students are facing unprecedented challenges. Thankfully, there are people trying to help. That's the subject of the motherboard story inside the open source intelligence operation to get foreign students out of Ukraine. It was written by Sebastian Sko Anderson and Gabriel Geiger. One of the uh, open source intelligence organizers is Chris Kubeka. All three are here with us today to talk about that story. I'm Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. So thank everybody for joining us. We've got a, a, a big... A big guest cast on uh, today's episode of Cyber. Thank you all for making the time. I know you're all busy. Thank um, you so much for having us. So, Chris. Thanks so much. Uh, so, Chris, we can start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? I would say you're kind of the subject of this piece uh, in some ways, right? In, in some ways. Uh, basically, uh, using my uh, skills in open source intelligence gathering to help people in need. And um, I'm not the only one. So uh, my background is I'm former military. I've been an ethical hacker since I was, okay, I can't say I was an ethical hacker at 10, but I was a hacker. Um, So it's been a while. And I I have a lot of experience, especially from the military and combining data sources and uh, use it every day in my professional field and my day-to-day job. So where were you when the war, I mean, I wouldn't say started, um, escalated out of East Ukraine? I was at the Intercontinental Hotel in Kiev uh, when it started uh, escalating quite a bit. So um, I know the, the nature of the work you were doing at the time was sensitive, but can you give us a little bit about what you were doing there? Uh, yeah, I was brought there uh, in case they needed an incident manager for any sort of nuclear cyber incident. Okay. Um, I mean, I feel like I could talk about that for the rest of the show, uh, and what, what, what exactly a nuclear cyber incident would entail, but let's table that for the moment. <laughs> um, so you, when did you, you left, right? You fled. When did you flee and what did that look like and how, how did open source intelligence help you get out? Well, we figured it was probably a good time to leave when the Russians uh, destroyed the Kiev airport. So it wasn't like I was going to get a flight home anyway. Uh, and uh, we decided to uh, make it uh, out as quickly as possible, taking the south route instead of the western route where most of the traffic was going. And uh, there were several ways that some of my OSINT colleagues and peers helped me out. Uh, For example, uh, because it was a war situation and Russian bombs were dropping in Kiev as we were trying to leave, I uh, came up with a plan with uh, one of my friends, Dutch OSINT guy, for him to 
give me as much intelligence as possible so that our small convoy with about 26 people could arrive hopefully to the Romanian border in a safe manner. And uh, it was extremely invaluable because the first place that we were going to take a proper break outside of Kiev to the south, um, he sent me a message that said, don't stop in that city. And that was the city that we were going to let the kids out because they were, you know, thinking they're on a road adventure, but kids need to be taken out often uh, from a van filled with people. So uh, as soon as I got that message, I messaged uh, the bus uh, in front of us in the convoy, and uh, Misha was able to turn right sharply immediately, heading on to a much smaller road. And in less than a minute of turning right, uh, we heard bombs dropping. So we narrowly missed an imminent bombing by the Russians. Uh, so this type of information is quite invaluable. If you have people elsewhere feeding in intelligence, uh, looking up information, uh, getting what they can get from their contacts as well to hopefully avoid being killed by the Russians. Let's uh, switch gears here just a little bit, start filling in some of the other blanks on this story, Sebastian and Gabriel, um, you're looking at specifically in this article, kind of the plight of the foreign student in Ukraine. And can you kind of give us context? So, you know, Vice has reported on this. A couple of other media outlets have reported on this. There's a lot of great um, imagery and reporting about the Ukrainian people like being kind of welcomed and with open arms in Poland and elsewhere. That is not necessarily happening for these foreign students, right? What exactly is the situation? Yeah, there's um, been a lot. So- of- oh, sorry, you can. <laughs> no, go ahead. You go first, Sebastian. Yeah. So. The Ukrainian students in, well, the foreign students in Ukraine have really had a hard time getting out of Ukraine, especially the ones who have been in eastern Ukraine, um, where the where the war first broke out. Um, the first students, I believe, that uh, Chris helped were based in Sumy in eastern Ukraine, uh, which were one of the first cities to be uh, under siege, and it was really hard to get out. And when they tried, oftentimes they would face discrimination, meaning. Uh, when they tried to take trains, they would not be let on trains because uh, the Ukrainian people had priority. Um, when they tried to cross the border into Poland, they were rejected at the border because they were not Ukrainian nationals. So at the same time, these people didn't really have any help from their own governments. Uh, many of them are from uh, African countries, uh, from countries in the global south where the governments may not have the ability to help them in any way. Um, so it's safe to say that they needed a helping hand from someone else. Yeah. And I'll quickly just add to that, that, um, I think, um, even after they've made it out of, of Ukraine, the situation is exposed as sort of, um, schizophrenic, um, migration policy by the European union, where it's, uh, open arms and, and, and gifts for Ukrainian refugees and, and fortress Europe for everybody else. Um, so there's been reporting just published yesterday about, um, foreign students being held in long-term detention centers for days or weeks. Um, so in, in many ways, the challenges that foreign students face when trying to flee Ukraine um, are, are, are more than uh, Ukrainian nationals. And this is already an incredibly difficult situation for everybody. Can you put um, Sumi on the map for us? Where exactly is it in the, in the east? Is it like right on the border with the Donbass or uh, Gabriel, say? But yeah, it's, it's 
just close to the border to uh, to Russia. Okay. Uh, um, and what is it about that university that makes it so attractive uh, to people from the global south? Um, so universities in Ukraine have uh, relatively low tuition fees. Um, for European u- universities in the European Union, um, for example, will charge 8,000 or 10,000 euros for foreign nationals, which um, isn't that much for the U.S., but is, is a lot for, for everybody else. Um, so a lot of foreign students from Africa and India head to Ukraine to study. Um, in, in this case, in particular, a lot of students studying medicine end up in Ukraine. Um, so yeah, that's mainly people come to finish a master's is, is the most common, um, story I've heard. Got it. So Chris, how, I mean, the, the journey itself is, it, it is, uh, you know, you're fleeing the war zone, right? It's not an easy thing to do in the best of times. Um, what was your border crossing like? Was it relatively painless? What did you see? Well, um, it, it depends on your definition of painless. I was not used to children. So uh, they were awake whenever we tried to take naps, when we were trying to rest up in between driving. Because the first day we drove for 20 hours, uh, and then the next day it turned into uh, an over, I think, 26-hour period. We were uh, in the van bus uh, all together. And it was uh, very interesting because... Uh, there were some fights that broke out and the line for the traffic going to the border. Um, there was a moment in time where border traffic just stopped and I had tweeted, uh, we thought that they went on some sort of uh, middle of the night dinner break, uh, but it turns out that they were hit with a cyber attack uh, and their systems were wiped. So when we got close enough to speak to some of the border patrol individuals uh, the next morning, and uh, was introduced via my translator, Misha. Uh, they then quickly briefed me on what had occurred and actually let us cut through with priority, which was quite unusual. Um, but uh, that also led to a lot of problems with some of the border crossings as well, all around Ukraine, all of the border crossings. And when did you learn? Because the, you know, the heart of this story is that you you get across and then you stay in Europe and you decide that you're going to start helping these foreign students get out. Um, when did you kind of learn about what was going on and, and decide to help them? Well, uh, the day after we got into Romania and I had woken up after just falling asleep uh, at about two something in the morning, I got messaged about, Uh, Maurice Creek uh, via a friend in Indiana and was describing that he was in Mikola. And so I figured, all right, what can I do to get this person out? And in the process, as I was reaching out for uh, a bit of help on Twitter and other social media, a person put me in touch with an organization that was in touch with these students and sue me. And I'm like, well, how can we start combining this? And uh, people started connecting to me, linking up with various private channels for all sorts of uh, intelligence information, whether it be what the situation was uh, at the many, many border crossings, including land and ferry, uh, live webcam views, uh, where bombing was uh, expected, where landmines uh, were expected, um, what the situation was like uh, For example, if certain border crossings were worse for international students because there were some hate groups 
that were coming out on the other side of the border. So uh, trying to get that information to them to go, don't, don't send them at that border crossing, send them at a better border crossing. And then combining that with uh, the group I was working with who was dealing with the International Red Cross, and we were trying to also interface with various diplomats to get some sort of uh, humanitarian corridor negotiated for them. And that was a, a, a task unto itself. But uh, looking at the different channels, uh, some of it was open source intelligence, some of it was directly from people from various militaries, for example, that was private information that we were trying to get out to keep them safe. Sounds like you've set up an impromptu fusion center, basically. Yes, I think that's the best way to describe it. Um, can you, for for an audience that may not be familiar with what a fusion center is, can you kind of explain what, what like how that works? Well, that takes in all sorts of intelligence and a collaborative effort from uh, different types of stakeholders and puts it all together and wraps it up into uh, as much real time as possible. Um, Sebastian and Gabriel, y'all have been following stuff that's going on in Ukraine. When did you become aware of this story and decide to cover it? So, you know, I was last week I was sitting at my desk. I had nothing to do and I was following the news on well, I was following the news and I was seeing these reports of students in in Ukraine who were basically begging for help on social media. And so I asked Gabriel, um well I talked to Gabriel about this and he actually told me that he was in touch with Chris. Uh he had been working with her on something else and and she had been basically evacuating students and and that's how i learned about this and yeah yeah and and what happened was um that i chris and i were in lisbon at the same time by chance um so i was like oh let's grab a coffee and in um a huge blunder i found us a coffee place right in front of the russian embassy um (laughs) it was not intentional and i was pretty pretty red-faced and embarrassed um, but, but yeah, we had a, a, I don't know, we were there for two and a half hours or something. And, and Chris told me about everything that was happening with the students. And yeah, that's when I reached out to Sebastian. We're like, I, we need to write something about this. How is, I'm, I'm curious, cause you know, I see how it's kind of portrayed in American media, um, the plight of these students. What is it like in Europe? Is this, you know, there's so much going on and there's so much horror in Ukraine in general right now. Is this something that's even registering there? Yeah, I mean, I'm a little biased because I worked with Lighthouse Reports, which just published a bunch of articles about this yesterday um, in in various media, um, including the the Guardian. Um, and so, I think there has been some coverage on it, but of course, like I mentioned earlier, um, it's still mainly dominated by um, by people coming from Ukraine, um, uh, Ukrainians, and, and that makes some sense to some degree, but. There's still this idea of, oh, we need to help Ukrainians first. Um, and there's, I think, overall a sort of suspicion of, oh, are these foreign students trying to take advantage, um, taking advantage of us, and uh, which is obviously ridiculous. Um, and I can give you one example. Um, so Ukrainian students are being admitted into universities in Europe to finish their studies. Meanwhile, foreign students aren't being allowed um, to continue their studies in European universities. Um, so that's just one one glaring example of of the double standard that we're seeing in Europe when it comes to um, foreign students. 
Do we have any idea how many there are? Well, there's got to be well over a thousand who have decided to uh, go towards Europe instead of going back home, at least out of the group that I have been speaking with. If not more, there's got to be more. Well, and I mean, any trip back home first, I would imagine, begins with going into Europe, right? Like, yes, yeah, you're not going to get a you're not going to get a direct line back <laughs> to Africa from Ukraine at the moment, you know. Um, not that I'm aware. So, do you have any idea how many how many have you been able to get out, Chris? Oh gosh, um, I know well over a thousand. Uh, just from Sumi and now Kirshen alone. And how many people are working with you on this? Ooh, there's got to be probably, I would say, around 200. All right, Cyber listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after these messages. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. All right, cyber listeners, thank you for sticking with us. We're back on that conversation about open source intelligence helping foreign students flee Ukraine. So what is, can you kind of give me a blow by blow of what is a day in the life of an impromptu fusion center? (laughs) Well, uh, hopefully you don't get woken up in the middle of the night with craziness. uh, But if you wake up in the morning uh, first thing that I do is I start uh, going to the what seems to be 10,000 different apps uh, to communicate this information from. Uh, it could be uh, Telegram, uh, DMs from Twitter, DMs from LinkedIn, uh, Discord, Slack, WhatsApp. Uh, I might have forgotten one or, or few. Uh, and then looking to combine that information and getting the information out to various parties that are working on different pieces of the puzzle. Uh, so it could be trying to get the best updated list of verified drivers that will actually pick people up, uh, uh, sending that information to translators who can then speak to the drivers and then try to, uh, translate and go, here's how many people we need. When do you think you can get them on the other side? If there isn't a green corridor, uh, speaking with various diplomats and trying to get a hold of diplomats to go, Hey, this is what we need. And then sometimes arguing with them as politely as possible uh, because unfortunately some of these students have been used kind of in, you know, like a political pawn. Uh, Another uh, thing is trying to get various embassies to understand that there's certain types of technology that can be used for these students. And this was a big challenge in the beginning. Uh, Many governments don't understand uh, little things like if you securely share your GPS location with the group that's actually trying to get you out, we can kind of keep track of you. And then uh, a verified driver can get as close as possible to you to get out. Uh, originally, some of the embassies thought that uh, somehow that would uh, cause uh, landmines to explode or would allow Russian troops to find them. They did not quite understand the technology and the fact that most location services are on by default. 
Um, but this is a problem with many governments. Um, then coordinating everything with other groups, uh, sometimes speaking with students, uh, trying to limit conversations as well, because you don't want to speak with all the students. Uh, you just want to speak with certain key students to get them the necessary information that they'll need um, as much as possible. Then getting funding, uh, such as trying to pay for keeping them housed. For example, uh, one of the groups I was with was paying for some of their hostel stays while they were in SUMI. Um, and then funding to wire the student leaders money so that if there's a chance for them to buy food and medicine, they could, which is what was happening with Kirshan. Uh, and so combining that with various uh, African student uh, union groups, and I always mispronounce this word, uh, various African diaspora groups um, around uh, Europe and the UK that are also trying to help these students as well. So lots of communication. Uh, my, my thumbs have sprains on them from trying to type so much. And are you mostly the the person that's kind of in the middle that's coordinating all of this stuff? Is that kind of your role? Yes. I seem to be uh, a big coordinator in putting the pieces of the puzzle together, as well as verifying information, because there's a lot of rumors, whether it's on purpose or whether it's malicious. Uh, there have been times, for example, that some of the groups have been inf- infiltrated by uh, Russian agents. So we have to make sure that the information is verified as much as possible. When you say the groups, you're talking about the the people you're working with online, right? I assume not the student groups themselves. Correct. Uh, so some of the groups, some of those channels uh, that even though they're private, some of the people who have been invited to join were not vetted enough. And this happens because you're in the middle of a crisis. And then suddenly someone gives you very blatantly incorrect information on purpose. Is it easy to tell when the information is false? Um, Not always, but uh, that's why I I try to use other sources to verify. So, for example, there was um, one that was a particular rumor trying to get people off of WhatsApp, excuse me, onto WhatsApp from Telegram, because Telegram is quite popular in Ukraine. And we had already spoken with a particular uh, computer emergency response team in Europe that are helping us. And we were told, you know, Telegram, not the greatest app. So as we had already started transitioning people to WhatsApp, they were then told rumors, oh, we need to get off WhatsApp. There's going to be this big hack that's going to happen tomorrow. And I went ahead and got that information verified as blatantly false because I wanted a peer review as well. And the day after this rumor was telling everybody to get off WhatsApp and go back to Telegram, Telegram was then exploited. Funny that. Yeah, funny that indeed. Um, So can we talk about the state of the humanitarian corridors? You know, we hear a lot of, again, horror stories about what they're actually like. Are they... Being as far as y'all are aware, are they being respected or is it no, no, you, you can't see it, but Chris, no, everyone no, is no, shaking no, their no. head. Absolutely not. Are Absolutely they- not. So, for example, one of the days we had uh, a, a verified humanitarian corridor in Sumi, uh, a group of Russian troops came to try to collect some of these Sumi students. And the Sumi students were like, what are you doing? You're not our evacuation bus. They're like, you're going to be going to Russia. And they're like, no. Uh, So when the students refused, the Russian soldiers started shooting at the ground near them and could have hit them because we had already had one student in Kiev that was shot five times and survived. 
So this is one of these really, you know, big threats. Another time uh, they tried to divert all the buses for the evacuation, but luckily only got one bus uh, and pushed them into Russia via Russian troops. Uh, so um, these things have been going on and it's a shame. Yeah, and I imagine when the bus goes into Russia, it just it's basically vanished at that point, right? Yeah, yeah, and then they get used as political pawns while they're in Russia, um, and then what happens to them there when it gets you know it's harder and harder to actually leave Russia if they don't want to be in Russia. They can't just book a flight uh, and get home as quickly as possible because uh, air traffic is diminishing over Russia. So. Sometimes, you know, the big fear is that they'll be stuck there. Um, can we talk a little bit more? You and, and Sebastian and Gabriel, please chime in on this one, too. Uh, can we talk a little bit more about you talked about um, dealing with diplomats and these students being kind of turned into political tools domestically in these countries? How exactly is that playing out? I'll tell you one way, since they didn't jump in. Um, we had a group of students from Kirshen who wanted to try to continue their educational studies in Europe. And some of them had already, you know, while getting bombed, uh, had already tried to make arrangements to get seats in various countries like Germany and so forth. And they were actually able to apply, which was a small miracle. Uh, in the meantime, one particular diplomat uh, from an African country in Russia uh, put out a press release on the Nigerian Embassy of Russia website that said all of the Nigerian students from Kirshan will be coming to Russia and to further cement the Nigerian and Russian uh, relationship. We have also secured seats for them in Russia. And the students were like, what? We don't want to go to Russia. We, we've, you know, we've gotten interviews with universities in Europe. Uh, a couple of people had already been preliminarily accepted. That's not where they wanted to be. Uh, so this is one example of some of the things that have been occurring in the background. It's so bizarre to to be caught in this tug of war, right between these between these two powers. That's not. It's a frightening place to be. I think on a, in addition to being in a war zone, right. Um. So one of the things that I thought was really interesting in the story is that you've authored a survival guide. Can you? We we didn't public publish it in the the piece, uh, but we have seen it. Can you tell me a little bit about what's in it? Well, it started out as a general survival survival guide uh, written by a couple of the organizations that I was working with, and uh, as a person who went through uh, something called SEER training in the U.S. Air Force, which is survival evasion, some rescue and escape, I believe is what the acronym is called. Um, I, I saw that things were uh, a little bit uh, too uh, far-fetched for a war zone. I mean, you can't just go to a store and pick up a tent. Uh, you're going to have to use other materials. And there were other things that they were facing, such as they didn't have uh, water purification or filtration. And in Sumi, they were running out of water. So I got together with some former Special Forces friends uh, to input into the, the survival guide to make it a bit more realistic. So uh, how to build a makeshift filter, something I had learned actually in East Africa using uh, charcoal, sand, and pebbles. Um, and also the fact that, uh, it might sound gross, but the toilet tank, not the bowl, but the tank water is actually drinkable water. 
and doing things like that because they couldn't just pick up snow, let it melt and hope to drink it because there were already a lot of chemicals from the fighting that were in that snow. Uh, so uh, different things like that uh, we had put in and added into the original survival guide. Right. You had actually seen video of them melting the snow and trying to drink it, correct? Yeah. And some of them got sick. Uh, and then due to uh, a lack of abundance of uh, clean water, uh, especially some of the women uh, were getting quite ill too, because ladies already are at higher risk for certain things when there isn't enough water. And in a war zone, it became much worse. What do you yeah. And just to jump in there, um, I, I, it's, there's also advice in there about, um, you know, what to do when, uh, when you're caught in fire or, um, you know, when you're an explosion next to you. Um, so it's things specific to a war zone as well. Right. Uh, cover your ears, but leave your mouth open. Right. When the artillery shells start hitting. Um, what is the most difficult part of doing this work? I would say uh, trying to get as much information as possible without uh, being overwhelmed with information. Uh, so only getting precise information to uh, people and organizations and also verifying that information. Uh, those are big challenges. What can people do? Somebody that may be listening to this, is there anything people can do to help? Is there an organization that can be donated to Gosh, there are, are several organizations that can be donated to um, and some things that people can help. If anyone listening is with a student union, uh, they can uh, talk to fellow student union uh, members and say, hey, do we have any seats available for foreign students who want to continue their studies? Because some of these people were too credit shy of uh, receiving a medical degree and uh you know, studies have already been put behind because of COVID for a lot of people. And now they don't have a school to go back to because it's been destroyed. Yeah. Um, all right. Does everyone feel I'm going to play us out? Does any, everyone feel good? I'm just marking. Yeah. So take this point out. Uh, me asking the question. All right. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to play the outro music and uh, thank everyone for coming. Uh, is there anything you think I should have asked that I didn't ask or cover or if we feel good? I think we're good. Well, one, one thing, I don't know if oh, it's, sorry. uh, oh, sorry, uh, highly applicable or not, but one of the things that, uh, the challenges, uh, foreign students are facing getting out. Mm -hmm. Uh, we now have several of the students that we helped getting out basically legally detained in Poland. Okay. Uh, let me know under, let me set you up for that. Um, uh, Chris, I know that, uh, off air, you'd said something about some of the students being detained in Poland illegally. What's going on there? Well, under the EU rules, they're, uh, actually allowed to stay in the European union for up to one year, uh, even if they're not accepted at another university. And right now, Poland is not really considering that. And we now have some students that are being detained without legal representation in Poland, and we're trying to get to them, but it has become extremely difficult. Even though we've tried to get them pro bono lawyers, uh, the Polish authorities have told us that they can't represent them because the students didn't sign a power of attorney to allow them to represent them. 
Yet, how are they going to do that uh, or even draw up those types of documents if they don't have access to a lawyer? So it's been very difficult uh, dealing with this situation. Is it simply, is it simply racism? Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, there's a lot of that. And, um, you know, I do understand the position of certain governments, uh, especially when Belarus uh, started pushing um, certain immigrants over the border, that they actually changed laws, for example, in Poland, just for that. But at the same time, um, there's uh, an astounding lack of empathy for these students who, in many cases, they don't have the money to replace what they lost. They came over with just the clothes on their back. Uh, their computer systems were lost, all, all this kind of stuff. Imagine doing anything without, you know, your, your laptop and your computer science uh, student. Uh, this is some of the challenges facing these uh, kids. And some are as young as 16, by the way. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, it's unfortunate to uh, say it, but I do believe that racism is in play. Sebastian, Gabriel, do you all have anything to add? I think I think Chris summed it up quite well. Yeah, I think this may not be able to you may not be able to fit it in, but I think the thing to notice about the humanitarian corridors as well is that once you've heard rumors that they're not being uh, followed, that the agreements to open them are being, not being followed, uh, even if it's just one of them, then as a student, you're not going to want to go through them if they open again and they may be legitimate because you're scared that they will, will that they may be killed going through. Right. All the swirl of disinformation makes it hard to trust even the people that are trying to help you. Right. Exactly. Right. Well, the article is uh, inside the open source intelligence operation to get foreign students out of Ukraine. Sebastian, Gabriel, Chris, thank you all so much for coming on to Cyber and walking us through this. Um, if you like the show, please like and subscribe. It helps other people find. And we will be back uh, in a couple days with another wonderful episode of Cyber. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Traffic jams tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.